You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. And finally, our third sponsor is 988. The Oklahoma 988 Mental Health Lifeline, 988 is a direct three-digit lifeline that connects you with trained behavioral health professionals that can get all Oklahomans the help that they need. Learn more by visiting 988oklahoma.com. That's 988oklahoma.com. And now, let's get into today's episode. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped for today's podcast, actually, because I know nothing about the district that we're going to talk about. Yeah. And for me and the listener, we're going to learn a lot. So Mike Hong's here with me to talk about the Asian district. But as we do on this podcast, before we do dive into the main topic, tell me a little bit about you. Tell me, how do you end up in Oklahoma? Oh, yeah, a little bit about me. So I'm second generation Vietnamese American. Okay. So a lot of people don't realize, uh, when you think about Oklahoma, a lot of people think about cowboys, Native Americans, the thunder, Mm -hmm. tornadoes. A lot of people don't realize we're one of the highest percentage of Vietnamese in the United States. Wow. We're in the top five regions, Mm -hmm. uh, highest per capita. And it makes sense in uh, Portland or L.A. uh, over on the West Coast, but... It's like, why Oklahoma City, right? And Mm -hmm. we can get more into that. But my parents were refugees after the Vietnam War, and I'm second generation, so I was born and raised here in the United States. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So I'm very American, and growing up, it's one of those things where it's like, well, I'm very American, but I look a little bit different from everyone else, uh, a little bit shorter, and uh, have a different culture with my family. Uh, but all the super Asian folks, it's like, I'm not super Asian, right? So it's like, where do I, where do I fit in? So right. growing up second generation is a little bit different. A little different. Yeah. Yeah. Have you managed to go back home yet? Yeah. So I went back in 2019. It was a very powerful experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's that like going home for the first time and, and seeing, you know, your culture and everything and, and, and like your parents or where they grew up and where, and ground, I mean, just the lineage, like what was that like going home yeah, to, to experience that? Motherland. Um, So I thought about it for so long, right? Uh, Because a a piece of our identity is always going to be Asian. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether I was born here, if I'm I'm half Asian or whatever, just a piece of your identity is going to be in that place. And so going back is very profound. I remember um, going and my dad showing me just where he met my mom, where they dated at, where I went to college, like all these stories I heard, right? Yeah. And it was so cool going with my dad because, well, my mom and dad, so they, w- they would go and they would see things that would trigger memories and they were reliving memories they had. And I would never have gotten that experience if it wasn't for, for going with them. And I had the opportunity to see how they escaped the country. He uh, left from a small fishing town. He showed me the route they took and all these old stories that he forgot. And yeah, it was, that, that was very powerful, seeing, seeing all of that. 
and uh, I got to see my grandfather's grave. Uh, my grandfather died before I was born, and he was a big uh, pillar of the family. And so seeing that was was very impactful. Uh, just grateful for all the sacrifices that he did to get my dad to where he's at so that mm-hmm. I'm in a place where I'm at today. Yeah. So just going back and just realizing in an instant the, the impact of one man's life, generations in the future. So I think for me, without getting too philosophical right off the bat, it's we always underestimate what we can do in the day-to-day, mm-hmm. but in your lifetime, in the next generation, little decisions you make today can make a huge impact. Right. That's, I mean, so powerful for you to go back, right? And like I said, you never met your grandfather, but the things that he did to give your your dad the opportunity to do what he does to now, that's where you are, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't be here, right? Yeah. And just how, like, it's, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you had moments over there where you're just like, just filled with gratitude and thanks oh, for to sure. just everything There's they've done, right? Just sitting there at a nice bar overlooking a city, just like bawling, you know, just like <laughs> yeah. thinking about the profundity of what I was doing. I remember being in, a, my family's from a little town called Gamran, which is a little fishing community kind of in the middle uh, south of, of the country. And my grandfather couldn't read or write. Mm-hmm. And this was his hometown. But I was at this like super nice resort, which it was world-class, waitstaff, just so beautiful, so nice. And I was sitting there at the top, uh, grabbing, it was just some, some nice whiskey overlooking the, the, rest of the rest of the town. And just realizing where my grandfather had come from, and then me with no sort of merit of my own. I didn't do anything to deserve any of the stuff. I was just born in the most affluent country in the world and all the Mm -hmm. opportunities at my fingertips and just being so grateful, you know? So, um, so quick background on that. My, my father, um, he was the one that led the expedition to escape. So he led 88 people to escape the country after the Vietnam war. He he was the lead guy and uh, he was the first one to go to college. The whole family worked to have my dad go to school. And my grandfather used to tell him that if I could read and if I could write, I would have been so successful. So he grew up in a little uh, fishing community where uh, the adage at the time was, well, why would you send your kids to school? Uh, A pen's not going to put rice on the table, a shovel will. Mm-hmm. Right. So with the mindset, there wasn't a lot of opportunity, even if you had an education. But my grandfather's a forward thinker and had my father get his education. Uh, he crushes it. He graduates high school, he graduates top of his class, and he uh, applies for his college program. College program, 8,000 people applied, and they only accepted 250 in, in Saigon, which was the capital of South Vietnam. And I was doing the math there. Getting into that program was more competitive than getting into Harvard. So... Getting into his program was something like 2.5%. Harvard is something like 3.5%. And so my dad literally um, beat the odds, crushes it. And in his his generation, it was like you either went to college or you went to war. Mm -hmm. Because right in the middle of the Civil War that was happening. And um, so my dad afterwards leads this escape. Um, There's a lot of oppression in the country. Uh, North Vietnam takes over South Vietnam. Uh, if they thought you were anti-communist, they could just kick down your door and drag you to a re-education camp. You're supposed to go and 
say you live uh, here in Oklahoma City and say China takes over or, or North Korea, you're supposed to go to some sort of community center and they feed you propaganda about how they freed you from the, the liberties that you had and now you're under the, the mother teat of this communist regime. You're supposed to clap, you know. All right. Um, because if they thought you were anti-communist, they could just drag you off and throw you to jail. Um, anyway, there's a lot of oppression, so my dad led the expedition to escape. But when I was over there, what I didn't didn't realize, uh, we're walking down the street in Gamaran, um, down the highway, and my dad said something I thought was really uh, profound. He said that my grandfather was the one that changed the history of our, of our family. I'm like, what are you talking about, Dad? You're the one that went to college. You're the one that let all these people escape. All these people that escaped the country, um, they're wealthy now in the United States and, and the rest of the world. They've been able to give money back and send people to college, pay for uh, medical care for family. It's like, what do you mean that grandfather did that? And what he said was, uh, if it wasn't your grandfather's decision to have me go to school, I wouldn't have been able to do any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have the education, being able to read, uh, being able to write, all the connections that I had in college. And so it was your grandfather was the one that changed the history of our, our family. Yeah. And that was just one decision like that, right? So you don't realize in one, two generations what that does, that impact that you have yeah, on yeah. hundreds and thousands of people. It's amazing. And I'm sure when you came back from you know that trip that you get back to the States and you just think, I should probably do a little bit more, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I should, you know, I think, you know, you just kind of analyze your own life and you're like, yeah, I'm doing good, but I need for probably change some, I could probably change some lives now. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I had that, I, I had that before I was about 23 years old. I didn't really have a lot of Asian friends growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm what we call whitewashed. Right. And so there's actually times, honestly, uh, that I kind of forget that I'm Asian. I'm walking around and I was speaking at a group one time and, there was this, uh, this guy, Asian guy, at the end. Um, a lot of times when you speak, people will line up and ask you questions, make a comment or whatever. Uh, this guy was just very patient, waiting for everybody. And he comes up at the end, he said, it's really inspiring seeing an Asian person on stage speaking and in leadership. And for a second, I, I thought, what are you talking about? And then I realized, oh, I, I am Asian, right? <laughs> And so I guess uh, I'm a little bit of an outlier in that, but um, I guess I have the privilege to, to forget sometimes. Yeah. Uh, because growing up, most of my friends were, um, weren't Asian. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, in college, I was about 23 years old. I was hanging out with my folks, and I was eating a bowl of spaghetti, just kind of minding my own business. And my dad comes in, and he just tells me, just unpackages the entire story of my family history. Uh, because he was talking about how... A short life was. He was about uh, 64, and he realized that um, since my sister lives in California, if he only saw her one time a year during Christmas, say he lives until 84, mm -hmm. I'm only going to see your sister 20 more times before I die. And just having that number there, that finite number, made him realize, man, life goes too quick. And so he unpackages that whole story about my grandfather, about how he escaped the country, some of the impact that he made. And, and I'm just trying to almost, because you're a, kind of like this tough kid and you're like macho, you don't want to show emotion, that sort of thing. 
And so I'm just eating my bowl of spaghetti, just trying to pretend I'm not intently listening to everything he's saying, right? And so, um, yeah, so when he leads that escape, he goes to the Philippines, they're there for two years. And he finally gets sponsored over to the United States. And he, he talked about how he landed in San Francisco. He was put up by the Catholic Church. And they let him stay at some sort of motel for a few days to get on his feet. Um, and he stresses that, uh, well, he said that America is so nice. Like he'd been dreaming about coming here for so long and he planned that trip for years. He was Rev G for two years, comes over here, sees everything, the cars, the lights and stuff. And this is 1983 or so. Yeah. America is so nice. But he stresses that it was a motel with an M, not a hotel with an H. Right? Some sort of Motel 6 or yeah. Howard Johnson or something, something like that. America's so nice. And he said it was the happiest day of his life. And I put myself in his shoes and his, uh, he's 29 years old. He has a wife and three kids. He's the man of the household, doesn't know English, doesn't know anyone here outside of his sister here in Oklahoma City. And everyone's looking to you for leadership, to know what to do. Mm-hmm. You're the leader of the house, you know? Uh, you're, you're the rock. And all he had was $10 in his pocket that he borrowed from a guy in the Philippines. And he, uh, he mentioned that he didn't have his contact information to this day to give back that $10, which tells me that that was the only $10 he had. Mm. That was in case of emergency, just in case something happened. You know? And so that $10 meant so much to him. He comes over here, builds a life, working multiple jobs, getting ed- his education again, he and my mom, raising us. Uh, Tasmanian devils uh, destroying everything, right? And uh, he tells me this whole story and I'm sitting here in a middle-class household eating spaghetti and with all the opportunities that I could dream of. And I remember going to my room, I locked the door and the reason I locked the door because I buried my head in my pillow because I just started crying. Um, it's such a mixture of emotions. One, I was so proud of my mom and dad for, for what they did. But two is I was so ashamed because I thought, man, what am I doing with my life? Right? Like mm. uh, they struggled so much to, to come here uh, for the opportunity to have opportunity, right? And my grandfather, if I could read or write, I would have been so successful. He, he would have dreamed to be a part of this. My grandfather actually uh, died because of uh, some sort of medical procedure that he didn't have access to when he was in his 50s. So something like with his intestine or something like that. It wouldn't be really a big surgery here. It would have been some sort of small procedure, but yeah. that's how he died, right? And that's how most of the world is. Mm-hmm. But I'm sitting here in the, the land of the free, the home of the brave with, with everything. And so it was that point where I made a promise to my grandfather and my father that I would make their sacrifices worth it. Yeah. That I would take advantage of the opportunities that I have here. That's so cool. And so that happened at 23, and that trip was a few years ago, so I already had that experience. Right. So, um, so though it was very impactful and meaningful, I, I had, had already realized how privileged and luckily I was just to be in the the Western world. It reinforced what you'd previously 
had, right? Mm. Like that moment. And and so you have, you said his sister in California, and do you have another sister or another brother? A brother. So at the time, my sister was in California, and my brother was in Orlando. Okay. And I was the one that stayed here. Here in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's super cool, though, to have that, you know, realization. And, you know, it's hard to have conversations with, you know, like, I cannot relate to going through what your dad's been through, right? But just being quote an immigrant or different in a country and growing up and having that like understanding of of where you came from gives you so much more kind of a little bit of a chip on the shoulder right but also like i have a huge opportunity here right it just brightens your awareness to what it is here compared to everyone else that grows up here that's just like oh yeah this is how it's been for all of us like this is normal well it's like you hear stories like yours and, and others that you know, it's not normal. Like I, I should really do something. And there's, there's a strong correlation between, you know, immigrants who have come here that have become super successful and made a huge impact because of that realization of, Hey, I could be back home, you know, or I could be in Vietnam or, and just doing something that, you know, just living life, right. Oh, just yeah. trying to get by every day rather than, you know, I have every opportunity I could ever want. Yeah. You, you know, you take advantage of it. I forget what the stat is, but, uh, but immigrants to the United States, are X times more likely to be millionaires mm-hmm. than people that are born here. I think a lot of that's just perspective. Yeah. Just realizing so. how lucky we are. But <clears throat> if you're born and raised here and you've been here for generations, you just don't realize the opportunity that we have. Yeah, so people yeah. want to take advantage of it. Yeah. So at that moment, then, when you're 23, do you start like, I mean, what's that mind switch? What's that time when you graduate? Do you think I need to go make an impact? Do you start working for the community and being around, be more community involved? Like, how does that, how do we go from there? Yeah, that's a good question. I always felt like I was meant to do something with my life. And um, because I've heard these stories growing up, right? And there's a a quote that goes, uh, to whom much is given, much is required. And it feels like I've been giving so much. And I think that when I was 23, that conversation really kind of sealed it for me and made me realize the, the profundity of it. But, um, but I've always been an attract to, to do something, but I've always felt like I was called to do business and to have an impact uh, with wealth and with influence. And yeah, I've been going on uh, that journey. Um, it's been opening up lots of opportunities to help out with the community, with the Asian community. Like I said, I didn't have a lot of Asian friends growing up, but mm-hmm. as I've gotten back into my roots and starting the Asian District Cultural Association, it's really brought me back to a piece of who I was that I didn't fully explore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So business-minded then was kind of like, I'm going to be a, you know in business. Do you get into real estate then? Were you already in real estate or was that kind of something? Something that's come recently. Yeah, so I, I first started with John Hancock Financial. Okay. I was a financial rep over there doing a life insurance, mutual funds, that sort of thing. And so I kind of cut my teeth a little bit there, but uh, left that, tried to start some different businesses, didn't know what kind of business mm-hmm. to do. And I was super broke for years, just living at home, just trying to make it. And I remember friends of mine are making sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars coming out of school and working with Devin Chesapeake as mm-hmm. engineers or, or whatever it is. And I remember just busting it and working 30, 40 hours a week, and that month I made a hundred dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. There's one time I remember I had some appointments in the morning and um, had some appointments and during lunchtime I had in my 
uh, my appointment calendar to run home. And then I had some appointments in the afternoon. Uh-huh. I was looking back on that day and I realized the reason I booked a time to run home is because I needed gas to go to my afternoon appointments in my car. And at my parents' house, I had this piggy bank that it was something like $27 of change. So I ran and grabbed that change so I could go to Coinstar, get some money, put that in my gas tank so that I could go to my afternoon appointments. So yeah, it was a lot of a lot of struggle trying to figure it out. All of my business meetings were at Panera Bread, uh, not Starbucks, because instead of $5 for coffee, it was $1.79 for a cup. You can refill it uh, probably two to three times before it gets soggy. So you can't use it more than that, but we can go to multiple different Panera Breads. So for a long time, I just struggled and, and floundered uh, trying to figure out what, uh, what made sense. I finally started getting into uh, marketing because I was young. I knew social media. It was actually for a realtor. She paid me $400 a month to run her social media, something I'd probably charge, I don't know, $1,000, $1,500 to, for today. But consistent income was great. 400 bucks is 400 bucks. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, realizing that I could do social media marketing, got into marketing, had a business that was actually making some adult income, started hiring some folks. So that started going pretty well. And in that time period, I realized that I didn't have a, uh, any sort of retirement plan. And I met a guy whose parents had six houses from home creations. Mm-hmm. And with that, I realized, oh, you can own more than one house? It's like, why is that? Oh, you rent them out? Okay. And I'm doing the math. Okay, say they're all paid off. $1,000 you're making a month per house times seven. That's $84,000. Yeah. I don't have any sort of pension or something like that. Let's, let's do that while I'm young because 15, 30 years it's paid off. I can have some sort of plan. And so, so from there, I met people that retired in their, in their 20s. Uh, a buddy of mine retired when he was 29 years old. Uh, we call him Nate the Nomad Allen. Nomads, they travel all the time. So basically, he just bought a fourplex, has been traveling for the last six years of his life, just kind of hanging out, you know, traveling all around the world with his motorcycle. So I saw people with lifestyles like that. I saw people like Zach Morton that are making a lot of money. Uh, just living life to the to the highest, and I thought, you know, I should get into to real estate too. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's how I was introduced. To yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, just doing a little bit. You you seem like you are big into fitness as well, mm-hmm. and big into your martial arts. Is that something that just like I want to get into fitness? Because I know do you and Zach roll every now and then? Are you yeah, kind of, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I yeah. met Zach through MMA. Okay, yeah, because. Stuff honestly scares the life out of me because oh, yeah, I, I hate yeah. being claustrophobic and stuck and like yeah. that would. I think it's so fun, but some people are just wired different. I guess. Yeah. Like some people just like to fight. I don't like to fight because I'm, I'm mad or I have something to prove. Maybe I had something to prove at a certain uh, time in my life, but I don't know. Just the art of fighting, combat. When you think about sports and you think about challenge, it's like you do something arbitrary, like you're trying to get a, a ball through a hoop or you're trying to get a ball to a, a place. But when you're fighting, it's very primal. It's like one person against another person. It's man to man. And it's just very, I don't say primitive. It's very deep. It's very, uh, there's something very core to that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's the epitome of sport or the epitome of challenge, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Is that something you got into from a young age? So my dad did martial arts growing up. Okay. So he was a black belt in Taekwondo back in Vietnam. And those guys are hardcore. <clears throat> he did Kung Fu for a long time. So 
when we were kids, he got us into it. So I did that for about five years. I did Taekwondo and got out of it. I always loved it still, but as an adult, I was about 25 years old or so. Uh, a little bit after that conversation, I had with my dad with a bowl mm. of spaghetti. And uh, I was just kind of thinking about life. It kind of got me to, to a space where I was just very reflective. And I was thinking about uh, being a man and I was thinking, I've never been in a fight before. And if you've never been in a fight, a part of yourself asks, if push comes to shove, someone's trying to take advantage of me, my family, wife, kids, friends, could I take care of myself? Like, how would I measure up, mm-hmm. right? A lot of times I think we think as guys, I think it's just uh, the arrogance that comes with ignorance. We think that we're gonna be some sort of uh, badass in like some sort of bar fight or something. And you see a bar fight happen, you're thinking, why'd you pick that fight? You just got laid out. You didn't even know how to throw a punch. Yeah. Right. So I wanted to prove to myself what, how I would do. Yeah. Or I don't, I wouldn't say maybe prove to myself, but I wanted to just see how I would do it. Yeah. If I, so a buddy of mine said, well, we can go to a bar tonight and <laughs> just find out. someone. <laughs> I was like, one, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, two, I don't want to go to jail. And three, I don't want to get jumped by a bunch yeah. of people. I might die. Yeah. yeah. Um, so afterwards he suggested MMA. Yeah. Well, there's some rules. There's a ref. You can train for it. And I thought he was crazy, but it started to make sense. Yeah. And so I started training, competing in MMA. And that's how I, how I met Zach. So, yeah, I trained for a long time, and I'm still doing it, um, focusing just on jujitsu these mm-hmm. days. I've been doing that for about six years. And with that, it's one of those sports that keeps you in shape. Um, I could either go to the gym and work out. I could look at body mass index or I can look at how much weight I'm pushing or how fast I can run. And those are just arbitrary numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Or I could do something that I, un- I enjoy. And two, if I did that for 10 years, afterwards you're this badass. Right. It takes about 10 years to get your black belt. Yeah. So I thought, you know, why as well do something I enjoy, I can master, something I can use practically and something that uh, helps build myself as a, mm-hmm. as a person. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you'd always know, you know, when, you, when you're kind of in a restaurant, you're in a bar or whatever, and you see someone over in the corner and you're like, guy just carries himself different. You know not to mess with that person, right? Yeah, you, you, yeah. I think as guys, we just have that sixth sense to be like, probably stay away from that yeah, guy. He I can think, handle himself. Yeah, right? a lot of times it's like that. But also too, there's a lot of times you have no idea. True. You're walking around... And there's some sort of killer and you just seems so unassuming, like hanging out with all these jujitsu black belts, uh, guys that I've met uh, doing martial arts and you spar with them. We call it rolling. Mm-hmm. You, you, uh, you're fighting them uh, in, the, in the training sort of environment and they're just murking dudes. They're just making people look like children. So if you've never done martial arts, uh, in jujitsu at least, it's like if you are going to spar with one of the black belts, say you're a, a grown man and you're gonna come into class, it's almost like you're trying to fight a gorilla or you're trying to fight a shark yeah. or you're five years old trying to fight a grown man. Like it's one of the most humbling, uh, emasculating experiences you're ever gonna have. Yeah. So if you have a black belt in jujitsu, you're a legit killer. Yeah. And so I know a lot of these guys, but when we go hang out or I see them out and about, 
they're wearing like glasses, they're like wearing like skater pants or skater shoes and just uh, their shirts buttoned up all the way to the top, hipster looking guys. You'd have no idea this guy could kill you. Yeah. Uh, well, a hundred percent, a hundred out of a hundred times in some sort of altercation. Yeah. So those people are walking around just like us, very unassum- unassuming. Most of them are nice guys, which is great. Yeah. Right? They're not starting stuff because they get a lot of that uh, that proving or um, that aggression out sure. in martial arts, and they yeah. know themselves better. I think. I have um, Rafael Lovato Jr. Yeah. coming up. He's going to be on the oh, podcast yeah? in about yeah, a month. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's got a killer. He's got a fight coming up, and he, uh, I spoke to him yesterday, and he's like, "Once I get this fight out the way, you know, I think he's just oh. his wife's just had twins, oh, so oh, like, really, yeah. he's got his hands full at the moment." But so he, he came out of retirement. I think, yeah. Yeah, because okay. he had a he had kind of a bad a head injury, I think, is what it is. So I, I don't know what fight he's doing, but he is fighting again. So yeah, yeah, I think he's probably the most decorated that. fighter to come yeah. out of Oklahoma. So I'm excited to get him on to hear what he does and and just you know hear his perspective on it. And his dad's a bit of a legend too, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, they have a really um, good school gym. over there. Yeah, yeah. So coming back then to to you know the the Asian district and the, the growth of it. How do you get involved? How do you end up diving in and now being, you know, president where you are now? Like, how does that all happen? And then we can talk about the event you guys just had, too, because that was oh, yeah, seemed like yeah, a standout yeah, event. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot we're going to package with all of that. But starting the, the district. So we, we had been thinking about creating something like this for about eight years or so. So we saw the first generation having events and things, and uh, it, it just wasn't something that we wanted to attend because it was very first generation Asian. It wasn't very Asian American, I guess. And so we never, I guess the question with the second generation, it's like, I don't really feel that accepted by the people that are super Asian, the first generation folks, because of the culture, the accent and stuff. So you never really feel Asian enough. Okay. And then also on the other side, it's like, I don't really feel American enough. Right, so you're kind of in it's this weird, weird in between, space, yeah. and so we wanted to uh, join and help out and get to our roots and that sort of thing. But it was uh, a lot of people that had these organizations for 30 years, and they're kind of just set in their ways. And so we're kind of just waiting for the right timing until they kind of got tired of doing it. And in Asian culture, it's it's just more hierarchical. It's almost like back in the 1920s, where it's more like yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am sort of uh, structure. In Asian families, typically your dad is your dad. He's not like your buddy. You know, your mom's not your buddy. It's like, oh, that's my best friend. Like, no, that's that's mom. You know, you're like, yes or no, sir, sort of thing. And so the whole structure of society uh, tends to fall that way. And so a lot of these first generation folks were kind of just seeing us still as kids because we're in our 20s and we just were graduating college and wanted to kind of uh, build our lives. And so they didn't really take us that seriously. Um, so we, we just knew that timing had to be right, and uh, a few shifts started happening. We started seeing things like the Plaza District, Midtown, Uptown, all these different districts doing some really cool stuff here in Oklahoma City. And we knew that Asian District was there, but it's like, well, why isn't anyone doing anything? And uh, Mr. Tu Nguyen, uh, he was the first president of our organization. Uh, he moved his office to the Asian District. Mm-hmm. So that was one major thing. Uh, we noticed that some of these organizations started passing down leadership to the second generation. Uh-huh. Uh, so the president of the Vietnamese Association was a younger guy. 
Uh, the city put $1.4 million into Military Park, which is the park just north of the Milk Bottle Building. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm lovingly starting to call that uh, the Asian District Lawn, because it's right over there. And you start seeing some of these businesses uh, give the reins to the second generation as well. So their kids are starting to run these businesses. So we thought, man, this is going to be great timing. So that's that's how it started. It started about 2018, I believe, just uh, five, six, seven of us with a vision to do something. There's a lot of people that cared about it and, yeah, started running with it. It's been a huge success today. Yeah, and, and even now, like, there's a lot of development going on there now, too, right? Like, there's been some buildings that seem to be knocked down, and now they're going to rebuild mm-hmm. some stuff there, and, and the growth of it, this great restaurants there. I mean, everyone knows Lee's, right? Yeah, everyone yeah. knows Lee's co- iced coffee. Oh, it's you so know? good. And if you don't, you need to go get one right now. Yeah, it's uh, the best. It's rocket fuel. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, and just kind of that area, and um, it's you're right, it's just kind of raising the awareness of it, I think, but also... You know, being the, like you said, the second generation and, and trying to bring in that sort of American influence, but also by keep American dollars, but by keeping the cultural, yeah. the important stuff, right? And just yeah, kind of you. raising awareness. And it seems like you guys have done a great job of that and something that you're super passionate about and you get to mix both of your worlds. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It's been very, uh, very rewarding. So being the president of the organization, since historically we haven't had any staff, uh, most of the time, we've had some contractors and some part-time help and that sort of things um, here and there. But uh, unlike all the other districts, it's all volunteer. And so this year, it's been great because we're going to be able to hire an executive director for the first time this fall. But this whole time, it's just been almost like a full-time job. You're part president, part executive director, helping manage everything. We've got an amazing team. Our committees have just been crushing it. Everyone's really stepped up. I'm so proud of the team that we have. And I've been chewing on a little bit of why that is. There was a another district a leader said how hard it was to find volunteers. I thought, like, why is that? And she started talking about it, and she said that, she thinks that people just kind of know their worth. Someone who is a graphic designer, they make $35 an hour. They're not going to want to work for free. And I'm just thinking with us, it's like, I know the income I make and I know the income that other people make on the board. Some people probably make in the thousands of dollars per hour. If you, if you break it down, break it down, people that are business owners and real estate, whatever it is, they're doing very well. It's like, an hour of their time is worth a lot. But these people are just crushing it. I'm just thinking, why is that? Uh, what, what makes us different from some, some other organizations? One, I think we're, we're catching the vision very well. And the vision isn't just, let's do something for the community, um, but it's, let's pass something on to the second generation. Mm-hmm. Let's share a piece of who we are so that we don't lose it. Right. So uh, a few years ago, I was playing volleyball with a bunch of buddies. There's this tall six foot white American guy, blonde hair, blue eyes comes up and we just have a conversation, hit it off. Uh, we become friends. And throughout the conversation, he asked, hey, what kind of Asian are you? It's like, well, I'm Vietnamese and my great grandfather was Chinese. so I'm part Chinese as well. And he said, that's awesome. I'm, I'm Japanese. I'm like, boy, you're not I was looking at this guy. I'm looking at like, you're a comedian, dude. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. My grandmother was from Japan, and my grandfather met her in World War II. Mm-hmm. So I'm a fourth. 
I, I just looked at him like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah, I can kind of see uh, some of the, the Japanese features. And I asked, uh, do you speak any Japanese? He's like, oh no. Like, Have you been to Japan? Oh no. Do you know anything about Japan? And he said, I like sushi. <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, that doesn't really count. And I've seen The Last Samurai once. I saw The Last <laughs> yeah. Samurai, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I realized in that moment, if I marry someone who's a Caucasian, my kids will be half, mm-hmm. my great grand, or my grandkids will be fourth. They're going to be walking around. They're going to be tall, which would be great. Um, but you're going to walk around, and people won't even know that they're Asian, right? But part of the, I, their identity will always be Asian, so if my generation isn't very intentional about passing on our culture, our heritage, values, these stories about our parents and grandparents, we're just going to lose it forever. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it, this resonates with a lot of Asian Americans is because we want to, it, it's very personal to us. We're wanting to pass on uh, the legacy of our families to, to the next generation. Yeah, it's not just, hey, we're going to do a great job and have an event. It's when you, when, you, when you have that meaning behind it, then it's very easy to find volunteers, right? Because yeah, yeah. they think about their family and their family might, you know, their kids might be involved in when they're up or when they're older, but just that kind of cultural, like, remembrance and, and, and I think, um, I don't know, like, the, like, to preserve that, right, and keep it going mm. with, with also adding in fun events, elements yeah. that just, like, want to bring people in, right? You know, yeah. everyone wants to have some fun and have a good time, but when you have that meaning behind it, it makes so much sense that... You know, you, you, you know, what is the quote that like, if you, you know, whatever your why is like, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to do great work when you have a strong why behind you. Oh yeah. Right? yeah. You know? It's all about the why. Exactly. Sure. So, so as a leader, I'm trying to cast vision and uh-huh. keep that in the forefront of people's minds. Cause a lot of times when you're tired and you do all this sort of stuff and you forget your, your why it becomes yeah. like a job or something. I never, yeah. I never want this to become a job. Yeah. So tell me about the event that happened then a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. How, how was that? And, and I mean, I saw it on social media and obviously it went very well, but for people listening that, I mean, what was the event like? What, what stuff did you have in, you know, it wasn't just, Hey, let's come out and drink beer and have a good time. Like you had some shows on and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. How, did, how did that go? So, so we started the Asian night market festival and this is the first year, fourth year that we've done it. So the Asian night market festival consists of just showcasing Asian culture. You've got Asian food vendors, food trucks. Even if you're not an Asian food truck, like there's, it's uh, Asian themed. Sure. One year, Hertz Donut came and they had a a green tea donut, like a yeah, matcha yeah. sort of donut, you know. So everything's Asian themed. So a lot of the uh, the mainstream community gets involved with that as well. So there's food, there's live performances. We've had line dances, we've had martial arts performances, live music. K-pop. Uh, this year uh, we had uh, Kimmy Park and uh, Andrea uh, Schultz crush it with the fashion show. Mm-hmm. So inspired. They did such a good job. And then at the end, typically we'll have uh, a DJ. This year was Triple A. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an international DJ known in the United States and in China. Uh, we'll do like a big dance party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's an opportunity just to showcase Asian culture. Uh, but the why behind it, like what you're talking about, I didn't realize until after the first one. Mm-hmm. So the the first event, I was a little bit, I wasn't really excited about it, to be honest. Uh, Tune Nguyen, uh, our first chairman, uh, it was his idea. So he 
uh, threw it out there. Hey, let's run with this. We had three three months to prepare for this event. A whole lot of work with a small crew. We didn't know what, what it was going to be like. Never been to a night market festival before. Uh-huh. There was, uh, I was doing all the marketing for it because of my marketing background. On Facebook, we had about 5,000 people that RSVP'd. So I'm thinking, okay, free event. Maybe half of them show up and then some more will show up outside of this Facebook group. So maybe 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. The first time, 15,000 came to that event. So it's five times more than we expected. Right. And all of the food vendors sold out, ran back to the restaurants. They sold out again. There's this buzz and everyone's like, what is going on? What is yeah. this? And I think what it was is we struck a chord with people. Walking around, I originally I thought it was going to be a big Asian event, but it was only a third Asians. It's probably another third white and a third black Latino. Yeah. Everyone was, was there and walking around, I was thinking, wow, is this what heaven looks like? Like every tribe, tongue, every nation is in one place. It was so diverse. And at the end, when we're doing the dance party, I felt I was emceeing that first year and I felt like Jim, Jimmy Fallon. I was like, man, this is yeah. Oklahoma City, guys. And it was perfect weather, 72 degrees. I have triple eight play music and on the sound of or the cue of my hand, he plays keep it shuffle. People start rushing the stage. We're under the backdrop of all these lights with the background of Devon Tower. And I'm just thinking, man, this is such a cool event. But what kind of sealed it in for me was I overheard this kid's conversation. He was somewhere around 23, just around college age, uh, about the same age I was when I was uh, having that bowl of spaghetti with my dad. And he was talking to his buddies. And what he said was, nights like tonight make me proud to be Asian. And that's the point where I realized, yeah, that, that's why we're doing this, right? Yeah. So the the vision, we've got a mission with the Asian district, and honestly, I don't have it memorized, but what it is in my own words is the Asian district is a space in Oklahoma City where future generations of Asian Americans can come, remember their heritage, and be proud of who they are. Yeah. But for the mainstream community, they love to be involved too because everyone loves to travel. People want to experience culture. You want to try new food. You want to expose your kids to something different. So it's an opportunity for people to travel without leaving the confines of Oklahoma City. Yeah. We're right in the heart of Oklahoma City on 23rd and Classen. And so I think that that's why events like these are so successful is because it hits on a lot of different things that are going on. And it's very just core to who we are as Asian Americans core to who we are as Oklahomans. Yeah. And yeah, this year we, I'm not sure the exact numbers. I know last year was about 40,000 and this year was, was very packed and could not be more proud of the team of what they've been able to accomplish. Yeah. It's amazing though. You're right. And it's to have that kind of realization and overhear that conversation and just be like, yeah, like you're right. Like this is, this is why we're doing this. And, and you know, it, it nights like that and bring people back right you know that it because they 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 now know the area they're comfortable enough to know where you know they've tried some food and and that's kind of the hardest thing right is getting people to your district once you get them there they feel comfortable yeah they'll come back if whether it's for a coffee or some food yeah. some tea whatever it is it's just the hard part of getting there first so these events really are are massive Kind of bring you know it would be great to track somehow like people the retention of, yeah, of these yeah, people yeah. showing up right in these businesses but yeah, absolutely super awesome yeah events like this is a part of placemaking mm-hmm. it makes a, a 
piece uh, of the city special. And there's a difference between the Asian district and a few blocks north or south or east. So, um, yeah, that's the the dream to, to keep on developing that and making that a space where people want to yeah. come back to you. Awesome. Well, finishing up then, for people who have listened to this podcast and want to get involved, want to come to more events, do we have a website that we can send them to to track the schedule of events that oh, come to? Go out to asiandistrictok.com and you're going to see our website. Our Instagram handle and then the, our Facebook is the same as well. Mm-hmm. So check out everything there. Um, our Instagram, we're, we've been building that. We've done a great job of keeping people up to date on our stories and, mm-hmm. our, and our posts. So that's at Asian District OK. Awesome. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you having me in the house and, and sharing your story. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's super impactful. Uh, I love hearing about, you know, your family history, grandfather, dad, and, and just kind of, you know, everything that, that was put in place to put you to where you are today and now also like what you're doing for future generations too and not just for your Asian culture but for just the Oklahoma City culture in general like yeah. it's really it's really cool it's uh, I'd love to see Thank it you. so for people listening I'll post the link to the social media pages and the website and we will catch you next episode cheers hope you guys enjoyed that great episode thank you so much for listening as always huge shout out to our sponsors the oklahoma hall of fame sharing oklahoma story through its people since 1927 for more information on the oklahoma hall of fame go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on instagram for daily updates at oklahoma hof our other sponsor the chickasaw nation amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and finally our third sponsor for today the oklahoma 988 mental health lifeline 988 is the direct three-digit lifeline that connects you with the trained behavioral health professionals that can get all oklahomans the help that they need learn more by visiting 988oklahoma.com oklahoma.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.